Please find your Bibles and join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be in the final paragraph starting in verse 50. We'll read that in just a moment. 1 Corinthians 15. While you're finding that, let me just kind of set the stage for what's happened up to this point in the book and why 1 Corinthians is where it is. It's certainly not haphazardly placed just randomly anywhere in this letter. Paul's entire modus operandi, his mode of operation, not only in this letter, but everywhere, but you can see it very obviously here, he has one main goal. 1 Corinthians is a very specifically written letter with one main goal. And that goal is to apply the Gospel, the work of Jesus Christ, to every aspect of the church's life. So that's why we've given the title of our sermon series in 1 Corinthians, The Gospel for Life. This is what I mean when I say Paul applies the Gospel to every issue of the church's life. Chapter 15, it's not the last chapter, there's one more, but chapter 15 is really the back bracket of the meat of the letter of 1 Corinthians. And this back bracket, 1 Corinthians 15, is about the climactic event of the Gospel. Namely, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ bodily from the dead. When He got up from the dead, it validates everything He ever said about who He is and what He came to do. So what Paul does in chapter 15 is he articulates the truth of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and he also brings out of that truth the practical applications of his risen victory to every believer and to the local church. So I said that's the back bracket. The opening bracket of 1 Corinthians, after an introduction in the first few verses, really starts in verse 18 of chapter 1, and verse 18 all the way to really the middle of chapter 2 is the opening bracket. So chapter 1 and chapter 15 are the brackets. In chapter 1, Paul opens the letter with one of the most thorough gospel diatribes in the whole Bible. A diatribe is an argument against an imaginary opponent. He's predicting their questions and answering them with the gospel. Specifically, in that opening bracket, here's how Paul applies the gospel. He shows God's wisdom in devising, that is creating, coming up with, and executing the Gospel plan in contrast to the Corinthian sense of puffed up wisdom. That's the opening bracket. Closing bracket, chapter 15, the resurrection. And what I want you to see in summary fashion before we read this passage is everything in the middle of those brackets is an explicit No doubt about it. You don't need special powers of interpretation to see it. Application of the Gospel to the whole life of the church. Chapter 1, Paul learns that there are unity issues in the church. So from chapter 1 to chapter 4, Paul says look at the Gospel as the solution. Now some of us parents try to figure out how to get unity in the home. We come up with all kinds of creative measures. We have get-along shirts. Everybody know what a get-along shirt is? It's like four sizes too big, you put it over both of the kids and they've got to wear it until they get along. 
Paul doesn't do that. Instead of that, he doesn't go into dad mode, he goes into gospel mode. And in verses 10 to 17 of chapter 1, he tells them how the gospel solves strife. In 18 through 25 of chapter 1, he tells them how the gospel reveals true wisdom. And in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, he tells them how the message of the gospel, not the messenger, is the key to the health of the church. And in chapter 3, starting in verse 10, he shows them how ministers themselves will be judged not ultimately by you. Look, we're getting C minuses and D pluses on our best days. <laughs> but at the end of the day, the ministers themselves are going to be measured, chapter 3, verse 10 to 17, by the gospel. When Paul found out that worldliness was fracturing the church, in chapter 4, verses 6 to 13, he takes them to the fountain of the gospel. And when Paul finds out that there are purity issues, sexual immorality running amok in the congregation, chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 6, he doesn't give them a lecture on how they need to keep up appearances so the world won't think that they're so bad and dirty. He tells them that Jesus the Mediator creates holiness in the congregation. How does He do it? By applying the Gospel. In chapter 5, verses 1-13, to Paul again dips into the Gospel to answer why and how to do church discipline. And when it comes to the practical stuff, Paul doesn't go to restaurants and break up in fortune cookies to tell people how to live. He doesn't dial up the newspaper on his iPad and look at the horoscope. He looks to the empty tomb of Jesus. And I literally mean that. Chapter 6, verse 12, Paul applied the resurrection of Jesus Christ to lawsuits in the church. The Gospel's the answer to that. In verses 18-20 to 20 of chapter 6, why should you flee sexual immorality? Because King Jesus is alive from the dead. What I'm trying to say and show is that the only antidote that Paul gives to the church at Corinth for any and every problem they face is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You got marriage problems? Chapter 7, the Gospel. Are you single? Chapter 7, verse 25, the Gospel. What if your friends are going to pagan parties and your friends call themselves Christians and they do stuff that hurt the faith of other Christians? Chapter 8, the Gospel. What about how does the character of God drive the way we do corporate worship? Ordering our services. Chapter 11, verse 2 and following the Gospel. What about who partakes of the Lord's Supper? Chapter 11, verse 17 and following the Gospel. What about how to use my spiritual gifts? Chapter 12 to 14, the Gospel. What about neighbor love? Hello, chapter 13, the Gospel. The main lesson we learn from the book of 1 Corinthians is that the Gospel is for life. And if you want to do life well, we must learn how the Gospel applies to every aspect of our living. To put that in a way that hopefully helps us look in the mirror, if we don't know how the Gospel applies to our life and to the local church, we're not doing it right. So having surveyed for 15 straight chapters that Paul's only recourse 
when believers are faced with various challenges of life, Paul's only recourse is the Gospel. We already have an application question before we even get to the sermon text, don't we? Maybe it's already obvious. If God's only answer for every problem is to be drawn out of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the application has to be where are you running for help? Where are you running for healing? And would you pray about that? Well, the final major issue, chapter 15, dealing with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And Paul concludes this glorious chapter by pointing us once again to the application of the Gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll pick up the reading in verse 50, 50, reading from the New American Standard, hear the word of the living God. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, when this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Join me at the throne of grace as we ask again for God's help. Father, our sincere prayer that You would cause us to believe what You just said. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to consider this passage, verse 50-58, to in two parts. The first is verse 50-57, to and the second is verse 58. Verse 50-57 to speaks about our future transformation. And verse 58 speaks about our present application, or the exhortation Paul gives to us presently. So first, future transformation. Three ways to look at it. Verse 50 to 57 show us that the future bodily transformation is a guarantee for all believers for at least three reasons. The first, our future transformation, is an absolute guarantee because number one, it is a gospel necessity. Let your eyes fall on the word must in verse 53. M U S T, two times. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. That's what I mean when I say this is a gospel necessity. Must is, by definition, the language of necessity. The Scriptures teach 
that future radical, thorough transformation for every single Christian is a gospel necessity. On its own, verse 50 might seem to be teaching that the body, our physical frame, will not be part of our glorified condition as believers. So in verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Perishable can't inherit the imperishable. If you just read that verse by itself, you're going to get all kind of heretical conclusions. Paul is not saying in this verse that your body will not transcend into the life to come. Rather, he is focusing on the necessity that only a certain type of body will belong to believers in the age to come. One commentator said, the present constitution of the body must be changed before it is fit or adequate to enter God's kingdom. That's what Paul's talking about when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What he meant was, and this matters for us today in so many radical ways, he meant that corruptible material cannot exist in God's presence. Let me say it again. Cannot. It's not only that God will not allow it, He cannot allow it. It's a necessary consequence of who He is. If you think back to the first three chapters of the Bible, why were Adam and Eve kicked out of Eden? Why could they not stay there? They had a nice home. It was fenced in. The yard was well manicured. And the wild animals would come by and visit at noon and evening for their snack. Why couldn't they stay there? They were banished from the garden in Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered the world because corruptible material cannot exist in God's presence. So Paul's talking here about the great reversal of the curse. He's talking about people who were once corrupt living in God's presence forever. You have to undergo a change to be suited for that environment. In heaven, everything will be, if you will, one gigantic Eden. Garden of Eden. God's incorruptible people enjoying His incomprehensible glory without any impediment. So when Paul says our natural bodies cannot inherit God's kingdom, he says it's because they're corruptible. They need to be incorruptible. They're perishable. They need to be imperishable. John Calvin got it right on this verse. Our flesh will share in the glory of God, but only after it has been renewed and restored to life by the Spirit of Christ. If you're wondering what that means, or what our bodies are going to look like, take a long, steady look at Jesus. He is the template. He is the par excellence example. He is, as this chapter says repeatedly, the first fruits. His risen body from the dead is the prototype of what our raised bodies will be like. And when He rose from the dead, He said this sentence, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Look at Jesus. Now, if you really want to shock your system, you're going to need some super-duper power sunglasses to imagine what the Bible says about you. 
Consider the biblical statements that indicate what our bodies will be like in glory. When I say we're going to be like the risen body of Jesus, what I mean is Mount of Transfiguration. Listen carefully. When Jesus was transfigured and His human body started to radiate the glory of God, we find in Matthew 17.2, He was transfigured before, before them. Now, now catch this phrase. And His face shone like the sun and His garments became white as light. Well, that's great for Jesus, but now let's talk about you. If you're in Christ, what will your body look like? Thank you for asking. Matthew 13.43 Then the righteous you ready? will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Did you hear that? What did Jesus' face shine like? The sun. What will your body shine like? Will shine forth as the sun. Now I just bought some fancy sunglasses for the first time in my life. I lose everything and I'll probably lose these too. But I bought some fancy ones and the lenses are made supposedly out of some kind of technology they figured out in NASA when they started going to the moon. And Anyway, they're supposed to be really good, but I don't care how polarized your sunglasses are. The person sitting next to you right now if they are a true Christian, are going to outshine the sun in the age to come such that there's not a lens in the universe that would be able to help you not squint if you were to look at them. You're going to be changed. Paul is also drawing a clear line in the sand. If you're not in Christ in this lifetime, you have no hope to be in glory in the life to come. Instead of being raised to everlasting life, if you're not in Jesus, and I don't know how to say it more clearly and with a broken heart and lovingly, Ephesians chapter 5 says you will be raised. But verse 6 says you will be raised to, quote, the wrath of God. The fact that all Christians will be raised bodily in glory becomes even more clear under this gospel necessity in the next few verses. Look at verse 51. When Paul says, I tell you a mystery... He explains what that mystery is at the end of the verse. We all will be changed. That's the mystery. It's further unpacked what this change means and what will happen for the bodies of all believers, even the believers who have died. Verse 51 says those who have fallen asleep. That means those who have died already. Or for those who are still alive. Now notice how this change is going to take place. It will be immediate, it will be thorough, and it will be eternal. Verse 52, in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet. Immediate, immediate change. It will also be thorough. Verse 52, we will all be changed. In verse 53, it will be eternal. This perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. Immortality means you cannot die. You are immortal. It is forever fixed. Immediate, thorough, eternal change. So when you hear the music start to play at the last trumpet, the work will already be finished. It will be complete. Your transition into glory is like your justification, not like your sanctification. The deep human ache that everybody has to be fixed and the sin that's running amok in the middle of the sexual revolution, let's be honest, when people are undergoing change, 
is because they and we all have a deep innate longing not to be like this. The reason diet companies make billions and workout programs make trillions is because we don't want to be like this. And there can be healthy elements garnered from maybe some of that stuff, but deep inside every heart is a desire to be fixed. It's an ache in you. It's a longing in you. There's a glory vacuum in your heart. And your transition into glory, I said, is going to be immediate. Like your justification, not like your sanctification. In sanctification, those who are in Jesus are progressively being made more like Jesus. But in our justification, God instantaneously declares us righteous upon the moment of faith. When we rest ourselves entirely in the risen Jesus for all of God's acceptance, none of our works, all of Christ, God declares us righteous. He then sanctifies us, but glorification is instant. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. No process. We will be overwhelmed by the tsunami of the sighting of the unmitigated glory of Christ when He bursts back onto the scene. And we will instantaneously be absorbed into the everlasting enjoyment of the glory of God. And it took me about three seconds to say that, but I'm telling you, it will take a fractions, fractions, fractions of one phrase of that for God to make you glorious. In that instant... You're going to be the polar opposite of Lot's wife. You'll never look back. When you see the glory of Jesus, you'll be magnetized to His magnificent person immediately and forever. You will be an immortal Jesus enjoyer. And the telescope of your life will be fixed on the radiance of His glory. This is what Matthew was describing concerning that trumpet blast. Matthew 24 He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together His elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians who were saddened that some of their loved ones had died before Jesus returned and they wondered what was going to happen to the bodies and the souls of their loved ones who were in Christ before they died, Paul says, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. When the trumpet blasts, morticians lose their jobs. Cemetery workers are unemployed. (laughs) Caskets are open. Graves are split wide. The dead in Christ will rise first. What I'm trying to say is that your busy schedule very, very soon is going to become very clear. Your to-do list is going to vanish when the trumpet sounds. Like the twinkle we see in the eye of a small child when we catch the smile out of the corner of our eye, so instantaneous will be our future gospel transformation at the return of Jesus. And I'm trying to say to you on the basis of this passage that that is a necessity. It's a gospel necessity. Charles Hodge said about verse 53, With regard to the living and the dead in Christ, it is true that these vile bodies must be fashioned like unto Christ's glorious body. It works like this. The electric current of the power of God touches your life when you come in contact with the risen Jesus by faith. And when you touch that electric current, you don't have to wonder if that power is coming into you. 
you will know for sure and you will know finally that Christ is your portion. Not only a gospel necessity, this future transformation, but it's also a biblical certainty. Look at verse 54 and 55. When I say biblical certainty, what I mean is Paul quotes two Old Testament passages in verse 54 and 55 to support his argument even further. One is, you must be changed. That's a gospel necessity. But verse 54 and 55, it's also a biblical certainty. In verse 54, he quotes Isaiah 25. And in verse 55, he quotes Hosea 13. First, verse 54. When this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, that's Isaiah 25, verse 8, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Listen to Isaiah say it. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That's the verse Paul's quoting in verse 54. Isaiah's prophecy and Paul's explanation for how this final glorification of the saints is the true fulfillment of a total reversal of the curse that started in Genesis chapter 3. Where did death come from? Why have 100% of the human race died save two men, Enoch and Elijah? Where did death come from? Paul's saying, by quoting Isaiah 25.8, that the cause of death, which we know is sin, Genesis chapter 3, Paul is saying by quoting Isaiah 25.8, He will swallow up death for all time. Death is swallowed up in victory, to use Paul's way of rendering it. Paul is saying something mighty about Jesus. Something big about Jesus. The biggest idea you have ever had about Jesus is a fraction of the totality of who He is. Can you trust the Holy Spirit to expand your understanding of the might of this man? Paul is saying that Jesus the King, when He got up from death, drugged death by the collar into the courtroom and put a death sentence on death. The apostles spoke like that all the time. When Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, you know what he said about this king? About this man? God raised Jesus from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death. Why? Because it was impossible for Him to be held by the power of death. Jesus choked death to death. Acts 2.24 and 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah told us about it. And when Paul sat down to write 1 Corinthians to this church he loved so much, he wanted them to see that Jesus did it. The whole reason he became a man, the writer of Hebrews says, the whole reason that the King of Glory stepped into the sin-torn world and robed himself in human flesh was so that he could kill death in his own death. He Himself likewise partook of flesh and blood, that is Jesus, so that through death, 
He might render him powerless who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus killed death. It's done. The Scriptures announced how the death of Christ, Martin Luther said, the Scriptures announce how the death of Christ devoured death. Oh, fellow Christian, it may seem strange. To some of you, you may not feel that you have the faith to make this taunt. And you don't have it in and of yourself. But if you look at the One who conquered death, you can look death in the face and you can smile because you have a Christ-filled hope. The Grim Reaper has no power over you. Death becomes for you a friend, a portal into everlasting bliss. Without one shred of a martyr complex, please take my life now. None of that nonsense. God is sovereign. He's in control. We trust Him for our times. Without one shred of a martyr complex, we can say, in God's time, bring it on. And Paul even longed for that day. He longed for that day. He wrote in 2 Corinthians, we long to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. We want death. We don't fear it. We don't have a martyr complex. But death is my midwife. Like the sweet young lady who helps the birthing mother bring a baby from one side of the womb to the other. So death puts me into its warm, soft hands and hands me to my Redeemer. The second Old Testament quote is even more strange. It comes from Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. It's found in verse 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? This use of Hosea, Schreiner said, is difficult because, to quote Schreiner, Hosea is speaking about God's judgment on Israel for their idolatry and pride and the fact that they had forgotten the Lord. You know what God's saying through Paul by quoting a passage like that? It doesn't depend on you. You don't get to overcome death and taunt death about the victory you're going to have because you're a big bad person or proud. No, 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 no. You get to quote Hosea 13.14 to death itself. Where is your victory? Where is your sting? Excuse me? What victory? Death? You get to say that to death, not because of who you are or what you've done. In fact, it's in spite of who you are and what you've done. But it's because of another. This is an alien victory. It's given to you, not won by you. At the end of the day, Paul obviously sees the fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy being realized in the resurrection of Jesus. That's the whole context he's writing out of. And he wants us to know, that Hosea wasn't involved in wishful thinking. This isn't the power of positive thinking. Okay, if I just think hard enough about it and long enough about it, then maybe I won't be afraid of death. No, 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 no. He's saying this is a Christ-rooted reality. Death will not have the final say over anybody who puts their hope in Jesus. All the threats, all the terrors, all the sense of fear and destruction, it's going to last for the night. But joy comes in the morning. And nothing will prevent God's resurrection power from being exerted in the lives of His people forever. For, I said it's a biblical certainty, for the Bible tells me so. Third and finally, not only is this a gospel necessity, a biblical certainty, 
But in verses 56 and 57, we see it's a Christ-wrought victory. So friends in Jesus, I don't know if you've learned how to listen to sermons, but I just said I'm not talking to everybody. Friends in Jesus. People who like me are beggars who found bread at the table. If you have come to Jesus, I'm talking to you. This is a Christ-wrought victory. You will be changed. You will be glorified. I've read the end of the book. Jesus wins. The victory you're going to receive is as good as done. This is verse 56. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Gives us the victory. What a strange way to talk about being victorious. More on that victory in just a moment, but let's look at the sting and the power. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. The sting of death is sin. That phrase could, should almost immediately make sense to anybody who knows their Bible and has lived longer than two days on this earth. Had there been no sin, there would be no death. Which is why Jesus, the only person who never sinned, the only person who never sinned, Jesus had to give His life up willingly unto death. It wasn't taken from Him. He laid it down on His own initiative. Read John 10. He had no sin. Death had no mastery over Him. He laid His life down voluntarily. He's the only person to whom that applies. For us though, the sting of death is sin. You know what that means. You can preach this sermon better than I can. Every single time we sin, if our conscience isn't seared, if we have not been handed over by God to our depravity, every single time we sin, sin reminds us that death is on its way. That stinger goes deep. It stings our conscience with the reality that we're mortal and there's nothing we can do about it. Because sin is unavoidable for us. Sin is unavoidable for us because we are all sinners. The only way that the sting of death can be removed is to have our sins forgiven. You may not like the big words. And you may not like what people have done with the big words. But they're in the Bible. The only way the sting of death can be removed is to have your sins forgiven. And the Bible calls that propitiation. You need your sin atoned for. And praise God for the blood of Jesus which alone cleanses our sin. The sting of death is sin. Do you want to know what Jesus is saying in heaven in front of His Father's face right now? Forgive her. Don't count her sin against her. If you could mark iniquities, who could stand? But thank you, God, there's forgiveness with you. How can He forgive your sin? He cannot do it unless there's an adequate sacrifice that's been made on your behalf. You want to pay for your sin by letting your good outweigh your bad? Please don't go down that pathway. Don't try to be saved by your own works. Try to be saved by the work of another. His name is Jesus and there's no trying there. You just fall into His wide open arms of mercy. He already paid the debt and He's singing a song in front of the Father's face for you saying, for your glory, count their crimes against Me. 
And if I have enough in my account to pay for them, then let them go free. And God looks at the account of Jesus and says, more than enough. When sin's stinger pierces us, we don't have to be crushed. We don't have to despair. We just fly to the fountain again where cleansing is found. The phrase, the power of sin is the law, doesn't mean that the law empowers our sin. It means that the law doesn't budge in passing its sentence of condemnation on us every single time we violate any one of its commands. It doesn't mean that the law makes us sin. It means that we're powerless against the law's force to hide from our sinfulness. If you don't see your sin, oh God, help me to say it clean, help me to say it clear, help me to say it faithful. If you don't see your sin, if you are not in tune with your own depravity, it's because you've never crept out of the shadows into the light of God's holy presence under the piercing accusations of His Word. The power of sin is the law. So what do you do? Stop running to the light? No! When the law exposes us, when it outs us, it also shines the light of God's holy character, yes, on our filthy iniquity, but to the only source of remedy, Christ Himself. Which is why you should leap for joy that verse 57 is in your Bible. It's where I got the title of the sermon, Victory in Jesus. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at that word, gives. Verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. This means that the victory is not won by you. It's not accomplished by you. You didn't compete for it. You didn't earn it. You ran no races to get this trophy. It is given to you. That's passive voice. Christ won the victory. He gets all the awards. And astonishingly, mercy unspeakable, full of glory, He takes the laurel wreath of His championship and He puts it around your neck. You are victorious by association, not by accomplishment. What Christ won is applied to all who are Christ's as much as if they had won the victory themselves. It's a vicarious victory. It came to you by a substitute who ran your race for you and won your prize in your stead. This is why we're going to sing in a moment. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My only hope. That's why the hymn writers would say it in the most radically biblical sovereignty of God-loving ways. I heard an old, old story how a Savior came from glory. How He gave His life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about His groaning of His precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory? What did I do to win that? Told God how terrible I am. <laughs> I repented of my sins. That's what I did. Oh, victory in Jesus. Listen to this. You tell me who won. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me. He bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me before I knew Him. And all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath His cleansing blood. That's what Paul's talking about. It reminds me of John Colette Ryland speaking at the internment. That's the graveside burial of his pastor friend Andrew Gifford in the late 1700s. And if I beat any of these other elders to the grave, remember that I said, quote this paragraph, at my internment. John Ryland said, 
standing over his friend's grave. Farewell, thou dear old man. We leave thee in possession of death until the resurrection day. But we will bear witness against thee, O king of terrors, at the mouth of this dungeon. Thou shalt not always have possession of this dead body. It shall be demanded of thee by the great conqueror. And at that moment, thou shalt resign thy prisoner. O ye ministers of Christ, ye people of God, ye surrounding spectators, prepare. Prepare to meet this old servant of Christ at that day, at that hour, when this whole place shall be all nothing, but life and death shall be swallowed up in victory. That's how Christians preach funerals. It reminds me of what Charles Simeon had to say about the ministry that death serves for the people of God. This enemy, this king of terrors, this enemy, this king of terrors is turned into a friend. And may now be numbered among the richest treasures of the Christian. If we view it aright, it's only a friend who comes to draw aside the veil that hides the Savior and all His glory from our eyes. What a blessed thought, O Christian! What joy should this thought impart to thy soul? With what transport shouldst thou exclaim, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Come forward, Christian. Put thy foot on the neck of this conquered enemy. Exult over him. As God Himself instructs thee, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Where are now thy boasted triumphs? Instead of swallowing up me, thou shalt be swallowed up. And instead of casting me into the lake of fire, thou thyself shalt have that for thine only and unchangeable abode. So what do you do when you find promises in God's Word like this? Your future transformation is a gospel necessity, a biblical certainty, and a Christ-wrought victory. You sit around and wait until it all happens? No. Verse 58, and that's where we close. It is our application. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Instead of thinking, oh man, good, I'm going to have future glorification. I'm going to have a resurrection body. Be with and like the risen Lord Jesus. Instead of saying, that's an excuse for me to do nothing now, Paul says it's the reason we ought to tirelessly labor in the Lord's name now. He really says three things. Be, do, and know. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Do. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. No, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Be steadfast. Do the work of the Lord abundantly. Knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This labor in the Lord is something we are to abound in, but we are to abound in it because of something we know. The word vain, not in vain, Literally rendered not empty, not fruitless, not hollow. So here's what we can say. Whether death is trying to taunt us, whether fears are coming from within, whether temptations are coming from without, whatever the case may be, as we are steadfast in Christ, immovably rooted on the rock of His firm, risen Lordship, as we are about the work of the Lord, we know something. This is what we know. 
We know that it is impossible for God to forget one act of loving service done in His name. When Jesus comes back, He's going to give us a new body. And when He has removed all greed from us, all covetousness, when we are glorified, He's not only going to give us a new body, He's going to give us a new body so that we can handle the reward without vainglory. And we will realize every time at 1 a.m. you were praying with a sister who was having a hellish night. And every time you were ministering the Gospel to one of your classmates in high school. And every time you were driving down the street worshiping the Lord and you saw somebody who looked distraught and you kept driving, but you prayed for them. And every time you tried to reconcile with your spouse for the glory of Jesus, you humbled your pride at the foot of the cross. And every time you broke your Bible open and asked God to speak to you. And every time you hit your knees in prayer and you asked the Lord to do something mighty, not leave you the same, but make you more like Jesus. And every time you gathered with the saints and you sought together to exalt and receive from the grace that Jesus already purchased at the cross of Calvary, and we could go on and on and on and on, we know something that there's only one empty territory in the whole of Christendom, and it's the tomb of Jesus, and everything else in the universe is full of the grace of God for those who trust Him until we see His lovely face. So prepare, Simeon said, for the coming of Jesus by steadfast adherence to the faith. Much will thy faith be tried on this side of eternity. Perhaps even glorious truths that are contained in this very passage will be wrested from thee by the great adversary, the devil, so that thou shalt be led to question the reality of them or thine own interest in them. But be steadfast. Be immovable, holding to the profession of thy faith without wavering. Hebrews 10. Fight the good fight of faith. 1 Timothy 6.12 Whoever would move thee from the hope of the Gospel. Colossians 1 Withstand him. Whoever would turn you aside from the right path or discourage you in running your heavenly race, regard him not, but run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Keep abounding in the work of the Lord because we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. I don't know what the trumpet's going to sound like on the last day, but if I get to put in my vote, it's going to include this stanza. When He comes, our glorious King, all His ransom home to bring, then anew this song will sing, Hallelujah! What a Savior. In just a moment, we're going to hear the trumpet play that very line. After the trumpet plays, you'll know what I mean in a minute. (laughs) After the trumpet plays that line, while this team of servants is singing a gospel-rich hymn over us, as soon as the trumpet ends and they begin to sing, you're invited to respond. Either by prayerful contemplation where you sit or by Christ-centered participation in the Lord's Supper. But whether you sit or whether you come after the trumpet plays, the invitation is the same for everybody. Go to Jesus, the risen King. Go look at His glory. Believe His promises. Receive His grace. And commit again by the power of the Holy Spirit to be deeply engaged in the work of the Lord 
until you see His lovely face. Let's pray together, and then you'll hear the trumpet sound. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank You for Your wonderful Word. We thank You for the truth of the Gospel. We let those words roll off of our lips, but what we mean is we believe that Jesus got up from the dead and we believe that when He conquered death, Satan, sin, and the grave, He made some fantastic promises to Your people that can never be broken. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Him and we believe that we will one day soon see His lovely face and we will be like Him. 1 John says, when we see Him, as He is, we will be like Him. And between now and then, Lord, You know the challenges. You know the excuses that we often make. But instead of listening to ourselves or our circumstances, we listen to You, Lord, and You're the one who told us, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know it can never ever be empty. You're going to reward on the last day those who faithfully serve Christ by Your Spirit. So help us to be about that work, Lord. Use this church and each of us individually to be fully engaged laborers for Jesus with our eyes squarely fixed on Him until He returns. And when He comes, our glorious King, all His ransom home to bring, then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Remain seated as the trumpet plays and then you respond as soon as that trumpet blast ends either at the supper or remaining seated.